0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Andrew Purvis discusses how pastors should connect the story of God with the context of individual people. Our host
1: is Dr. J. Michael Fazel In your book, The Crucifixion of Ministry, on page 128, you wrote, at its core, pastoral work involves bearing witness to the joining of two stories, the parishioners and gods. Who is Jesus Christ specifically for this person amid the particularities and exigencies of his or her current life experience? How does a pastor bring those two stories together?
0: It, it really is a fundamental
1: question uh, in this way, um,
0: in two regards. First of all, as a pastor, you have to live in Christ. You have to know the Lord. Now that doesn't just mean passing the theology test. That's important, know the Lord, knowing how to speak appropriately of the Lord. But you must know the Lord as the Lord of your life. That means a life of piety, a life of prayer, ethical attentiveness, and so on. It means a life of worship, a life of living in Christ. Saint Paul used the phrase "in Christ, in the Lord, in Him" in his letters around a hundred and sixty-four times. It's his. A fundamental statement about what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone in Christ, and I take that to mean an organic connectedness, a relationship, um, even in a rather hackneyed terms, a personal relationship with a living, reigning Lord. And that's something we have to attend to. It's, 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 it's just like cleaning your teeth. You get up in the morning and you clean your teeth. It's a, a fundamental good habit. Just because it's a habit doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Our habit, the habitus, the rhythm of our life is to attend to our life in the Lord. You can't do ministry unless you have a life in Christ, in him, embedded in him, um, rooted, uh, growing up in him, and in, in, in so that the flower of your ministry and faith is a result of your roots of faith and life being deeply embedded in the soil of the word of god that on the one hand the other thing to be a pastor you have to be embedded with your people you've got to know your people one of the sad aspects i think of contemporary ministry is that ministers tend to sit in big offices with a secretary outside and people come and visit the minister in olden days the ministers used to go and visit people And even the word parish, uh, from two Greek words, para, oikos, beyond the house. And the parish was the walking distance that the minister or priest could cover to get to the houses of the people. And we read in Acts that Paul visited from house to house, all of which is to say the, the pastor must know his or her people. You've got to be involved in their lives. You're with them in their births and their deaths and their Getting jobs and losing jobs, and in their hospitals and all of their ups and downs. You're with them. You, and and I think that's the genius of a pastoral charism, of a pastoral giftedness, that your joy is to walk with these people. So you know the Lord. You're embedded in the life of the Lord. one, one thinks perhaps of John 15, you're you're a vine, a branch connected to the vine. You're organically connected, and you're in Christ, abiding in Him. But you're also in the the people. You're abiding in them, and as the pastor, then you are the one who enables that conversation. They know the Lord too, but you're the one whose special job and appointment is to bear witness. And so, I tell my students, don't use phrases like pastoral counseling. If somebody needs a therapist, find a good therapist. So, your job is rather to help them interpret the context of their life. The vicissitudes the pains the tragedies the joys, go to the graduation parties as well as the funeral homes um, make the connections and in the small things you often don't even have to say words you are making connection between Jesus and them. it feeds into the sermons I, I, for example um, I preach all over the country and i'm i Come in on a parachute. You know, Here I am, I preach, I don't know the people, I don't know the context, I preach, people say how wonderful it is and all the rest. But at the end of the day, that's not effective preaching. Effective preaching arises out of a preacher, a pastor, a man or a woman who is embedded with the people and preaches into the context of their pain, preaches into the context of the silence of their, their cry to God, where are you God? And they hear nothing back. They You preach into these these terrible cosmic silences and these ambiguities and, and these confusions that are the normal part of ongoing life. And, and so I think there's that dual embeddedness. One other thought um, that I've played with through the years is that I think all ministry has a from to character. That is, you move from your place as the pastor, from your life in Christ. From your safe place to where the people are, and that may not be a comfortable place, um, although i'm well acquainted sadly with hospitals because of my own cancer, um, I don't like hospitals. I, I have a daughter-in-law who is a physician she's very comfortable in hospitals. I will never be comfortable in hospitals, but you know the hospitals are not my two place, and yet as pastors, we have to go into these uncomfortable two places. But we can only do what we do in these, as it were, two places because we have a deep groundedness in our from place, and that's our anchor. So I would encourage pastors really, really seriously in this regard. If you have no life in Christ, you have no ministry. Because we read in John 15.5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless you are connected into me, the vine, you can do nothing. And so the most practical, pertinent question I can put to a working pastor is, what's going on in your life in Jesus? Because if you don't have a life in Christ, you have no ministry. No matter how technically proficient you are in the skills of ministry, no matter how many committee meetings you go to, your life in Christ means that you can go into these situations and you know who Jesus is, what he is up to in all of these contexts, and you can point
1: to that, bear witness to that. It might seem like a trite question, but uh, what? how does a pastor do that? How does a pastor remain? It's not a trite question. It's a, it's a critical question.
0: Um, Most seminaries in the United States, uh, 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 this is on non-scientific poll, but I have the sense, do not have enough attention paid to the spiritual formation of the pastor, or in different terms, to the pastor's own formation in Jesus Christ, pastor's own relationship with Jesus Christ. I've often been struck when the disciples saw Jesus praying. They asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Some form of God's history with Israel had been around 1100, 1200 years. They knew how to pray. And yet something was going on here because what was the Lord praying? Surely he was praying out of his own sonship in the Spirit with the Father. And I, I think he was praying, My Father, because he alone is the only begotten Son, my Father who art in heaven. And the disciples discern. That something profound in its spiritual connectedness and power is going on between Jesus and the Father. So they're not saying, teach us the techniques of prayer. They're not teaching us how to do deep breathing when we pray as well. None of that's bad. But they're saying, how do we get in on your Sonly communion with the Father in the power of the Spirit? That's the point of prayer, is that we are in on The son's technical word might be perichoretic, communion of love with the Father. And so we pray, so Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, but back of that theologically, I think, is that Jesus teaching them, pray in me, pray through me, so that our prayers are through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so our prayers are accepted, not because Andrew Purvis is pious, God knows he's not, but because they are given to the Lord who takes what is ours, broken, muddled, irregular, incoherent, distracted, our broken prayers, takes them in himself, heals them, gives them to the Father in his name, and he takes what is his, his own communion with the Father, his life of love, discipleship, obedience, worship. He says, here, this is yours. Not just here, take it, it's, it's yours. I'm It's yours. It's yours. Not just a possibility. Karl Barth, great Swiss theologian, it's an actuality. And it's the actuality that we are in Christ, participating in his life, that makes it possible for me to pray. Makes it possible for me to to write books, teach my classes, engage in ministry. The question is, for me, for pastors, will I pay attention to that life in Christ? Will I seek to grow more deeply in Christ? Psalm 1 um, is a glib. Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 because it's Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, is Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 is doing something that no other Psalm can do. Psalm 2 can't do what Psalm 1 is doing. What is Psalm 1 doing? Psalm 1 is the gateway, the threshold, the entrance into the book of Israel's response to the Lord, or rather the five books of Israel's response to the Lord. Because as you have the Pentateuch, five books law. you the five books of the response, five books of the Psalms. And Psalm one is, is setting up this whole response. And it's a two way Psalm. Will you abide in the way of the wicked, or will you abide in the way of the Lord? And I think that's the challenge for any Christian disciple. What does it mean more deeply, more convertedly, more faithfully, to live into that reality that has already claimed and defined me? To abide in the Lord and to make my home there. And the psalm uses an image about a tree being planted by a stream of running water. It's a psalm of the exile. It's all desert. Emotionally, spiritually, it's desert, but also physically, it's desert. And yet, the psalm is used in the Lord, you will be like a tree planted by a stream of running water. And out of that plantedness, the plant of faith grows and the plant of ministry grows, so in the the education of ministers, clergy for ministry, we need to help people know what it means to have a deeper, more abiding life in the lord i've gone on too long with that question in answer to it, but it's really important
1: i don't think you've gone on too long the it it, it also raises the question of um the meaning of grace in terms of one's devotion to the God of grace without a, a, they're, they're becoming a legalistic framework or uh, attempt to be something that we aren't how do those work together how do we, how do we bring uh, a, a complete faithfulness to, to God in his grace toward us, without bringing our own so-called righteousness, and yet uh, living in, a, in, in, in Christ, in union with Christ.
0: Uh, to answer your question, let, let me refer to a Bible verse, if I may, sure. um, in order to be quite precise, because your question is terribly important. Colossians 2 verse 6, so the, And this picks up the Psalm 1, verse 3, image 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. That's the piety. That's the formation. Strengthened in the faith you were taught. This is the faith of the apostles. This is the faith of the church. Get the theology wrong, and you will get life and ministry wrong. And then at the end, and this comes directly to your question, overflowing. With thankfulness. In other words, the response that comes out, the life that comes out of this rootedness in Christ is not a life of guilt or obligation or of duty. It's not, I ought, I should, I must, I have to. It's a life overflowing with thankfulness. The Greek word for overflowing here, um, sometimes uh, in other translations, it's translated abounding. Well, abounding is an old. Funny word. We don't abound, especially as we get older much anymore. The, the word, this is a better translation, the word literally means overflowing. It's uh, Paul uses it in Romans uh, 5 to talk about grace, overflowing. Three times he says, grace overflows. Again, he says, grace overflows. And the third time he puts it in the superlative, grace super overflows. It's Niagara Falls of grace, not just a little trickle down effect. It's this huge grace so that sin has no chance. And he uses the same word here. Now, out of this life in Christ, growing up in the faith into every way into him who is the head, we abound or we overflow in thankfulness. Eucharistia in Greek. It's, what a wonderful energy system. Gratitude, thankfulness. Not obligation and duty. Not musts and shoulds and dots and have-tos, but a heart filled with gratitude. And this I think is the I don't know the right word to use, the the genius of the Christian gospel. That at the point where we are called into practice, into ministry, into service, it is not at the point of our, oh dear, I've got to go to another meeting, oh dear, I'm exhausted, oh dear, I've got to go and work hard. Guys, I tell my students this, I get to get up in the morning to come and talk to you about Jesus Christ. Or you say Folks, I get up in the morning to preach on 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning that Jesus is Lord. And when that has taken hold of your life and gratitude and thankfulness abounds within you, your preaching will not be dull because a thankful person is not a dull person. A thankful person is a person full of the joy and the energy of the gospel.
1: Aren't we told that we love him because he first loved us? That's right. And, and it reminds me. As you're describing that in Titus as well, that grace it is grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and mm-hmm. so on it, it begins with the grace of God he He moves for us first, and we can move ahead in that
0: um again, a terrific question because so often our own sense of guilt or need or obligation um, begins to take over there's another verse from Paul in Philippians three. Um, through the chapter, he is saying that nothing can compare with the fact that uh, um, I've lost everything for the fact of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And at verse 12 in Philippians 3, he writes, not that I have already obtained this, the fullness of Christian life, the perfection of life, or have already arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of it, and sometimes you hear preachers saying, We've got to press on, gotta work harder, go to more committee meetings, give more money, press on, press on, and you know, I guilt you, I guilt you, I guilt you, and I, I'm tired of guilt. But they read the whole verse. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is the first thing? It's not that I press on to attain the prize of Jesus Christ. I press on because Jesus Christ has already taken hold of me and I am his prize. The word in the Greek word here um, literally means seized hold of. Um, and it's not just that Jesus Christ has taken hold of me, it's Jesus Christ has seized hold of me. It's an intensive, and I seize hold of the Christian life because Jesus Christ has already seized hold of me. And I, I've preached on this verse, and I, I think of it as we're grabbed by the scruff of our spiritual necks. We're seized hold of intensively. And when Jesus Christ has us by the scruff of our spiritual necks, we can buck and weave and try to get out of it, but he's got us by the scruff of the neck. And because we are seized hold of, with thankfulness, I'm going to live this life the way he wants me to live it, and give it my best shot, knowing that no matter what, he has seized hold of me, and on that I will depend.
1: And your success or failure is is not what determines his grip. No. His grip is the reality. Remember Peter walking on the water? I'm thankful, so thankful for silly Peter. I mean, doof-
0: Peter the doofus, because he's walking towards the Lord on the water, his faith deserts him, he begins to sink, and what stops Peter from drowning is not that he's reached up and grabbed Jesus' hand, but that Jesus has reached down and grabbed his hand. Now, there's a place for us to seize hold. But it's Lord on the theological food chain. That what saves me is not my decision for Jesus, but Jesus' decision for me. He's seed hold of me. And my response is in gratitude, I say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.
1: Show me what you want me to do. In that story, the word immediately is used. Yes. Immediately. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's not a lot of time when you're sinking. That's right. (laughs) That's right.
0: Um, And that's so comforting because. As pastors, we can't throw people back upon their own strength and resources. My teacher Tom Torrance used to say this all the time: "Don't cast people back upon themselves, upon their own faith, their own ethics, their own piety, because we break, we'll give out. Throw, cast them back upon Jesus Christ, and held by Jesus Christ, they will discover the resources for their piety and their ethics and their service. But again, out of gratitude and thankfulness, not out of guilt or fear."
1: Ephesians two is a is a, a, a long number of verses about the the grace, the riches of kindness, and so on that has come to us, and it concludes in verse ten with "You're created in Christ Jesus right. to, to do good works." That's right. That's right. Not that you do good works to be. It, that's right. That's, that's all, right. that's
0: right. They put it in you know the terms that high school English teachers used to teach us, using indicative and imperative language. But the imperative is prior to and conditions the indicative, the imperative, the statement of fact, of reality, you are in Christ. You are loved cosmically from the foundation of the world. You've been seized hold of by Jesus Christ. Now therefore, this is how you no, live. Therefore, yeah. But the imperative, how you are to live, is the consequence and is conditioned by the prior reality, that we are in Christ, by God's choice and act. That to me is the
1: gospel. And so much preaching, though, it, takes, it makes people feel it's the other direction that they need to do something in order for God to feel this way toward them. Right. And and so they're looking over their shoulder for what they've done wrong, for where the weak link in the chain lies with right. their behavior. And scratch
0: most most of us scratch a little bit theologically and spiritually, and we say, "Oh, you know, I deserved this from God." I deserve this punishment, this cancer, this divorce, or what have you, and that—that uh, that is tragic. Um, it was the great Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, who in the 1950s published an essay that said that God had decided from all eternity that God would no longer be God without a people to love, that God is the God of love. That doesn't mean to say he's not the God of justice or of judgment. But I can say to you, I forgive you. And implied within that I forgive you is, but I, I, you've done wrong, because I wouldn't forgive you if you hadn't done wrong. But it's the I forgive you that is the larger reality under which the judgment is subsumed. So there is judgment, and we need to preach that. But we preach it within the context that there is something bigger than the judgment. More that overwhelms the judgment. In fact, they, I forgive you. I love you. You are mine. You belong to me. I will not let you go. And it's that—that that is grace. That is—that is why the Word became flesh, that we may know God is a God of love. Or to put it differently, the relations within the Trinity—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—are not relations of law or obligation the trinity is a communion of love three persons one being and the 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 heart of god if we can speak the being of god who god is is god is love and god gives us law in order to help us live life in an appropriate way but the heart of things the center of things is not law but love not condemnation but forgiveness and that's freedom For freedom, Christ has set us free, not for guilt. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Thanks be to God.
1: The gospel really is good news. That's right. Why it's called gospel? (laughs) Exactly. What skills then? What does a pastor need? What skills should should he have? What knowledge and experience should he or she have expect to have or or strive to have to be an effective pastor?
0: That's actually, I think, a very complex question. Um, let, let me work my way into it because I it's, have it's, I've no slick, um, packaged answer to your question. Um, the first thing I would say to be a pastor, you need to be well apprenticed to a theological heritage. There are good theological heritages out there. And to be apprenticed to them means that you put yourself, as it were, under the authority of a tradition that the church has said, this is faithful. If you're pietist tradition under the Wesleys, perhaps, uh, my Reformed tradition under Calvin, um, and who was Wesley apprenticed to? The Greek fathers. Who was Calvin apprenticed to? The Greek fathers. You apprentice yourself as a pastor to the, the men and women who have framed, And converted the mind of the church so that the pastor, as the teaching elder, is a man or a woman who has the mind of Christ and who can teach the people that they may grow and have the mind of Christ. So, being a theologian is not just something that strange people do, get a technical education and so forth. Being a theologian is a requirement for everyone who would be a pastor, anyone who would teach Sunday school, even if it's just the tiny tots. My wife this week in her church is doing vacation Bible school and the little tiny tots running around. But those who teach these little children, they need to be theologians. They need to know who is the Lord? Who is God? The God whom we name, the God who we trust has claimed us. And to be able to express that in cogent and accurate and careful terms. I think too to be a pastor, you need to be apprenticed to a tradition of ministry. Um, too much modern ministry is gimmickry. Uh, and I don't mean to be offensive in saying this, but too much modern ministry is enthralled to passing psychological fads or sociological fads. I, in the fall at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, will be teaching a course on classical texts for pastoral theology. I think there's a copy in your pile of books there. And we'll be reading. Old dead guys. Gregory of Nazianzus, 380s, the first systematic text on pastoral ministry in the history of the church. John Chrysostom, the Greek father from Antioch. Gregory the Great, 590 became Pope. His book of pastoral rule was the book of pastoral care for the next thousand years in the Western church. Martin Butzer, the most important pastoral writer of the Reformation Age, his pastoral theology just been published in English for the first time. Uh, Richard Baxter, the Reformed Pastor, doesn't mean the Calvinist pastor, it means the renewed pastor, the pastor in Christ, and the reminiscences of my favorite John MacLeod Campbell of Scotland. All of these texts are available. They're all texts, but including I'm sorry there are no women in them. Um, wish that were the case, but this is what we have. This is the great wisdom, the depository of pastoral knowledge in the history of the ecumenical church. and I teach this stuff, and the students catch fire. They're staggered at this stuff, this wisdom. We've got to apprentice our students to the wisdom of the pastoral heritage that has been passed on. People knew how to do pastoral ministry before Sigmund Freud came along. They knew how to do pastoral ministry before we got into all this modern psychology and sociology. None of that's wrong, but it's not what defines our work. Read the great texts, study the great theologians. The third thing I would say is read the great spiritual saints, um, read the Augustans and the Gregory of Nazianzus, and they read Calvin's chapter on prayer in his institutes, and read Luther on Galatians, and um, read uh, some of the great Roman women, uh, Teresa of Avila. You may not agree, that doesn't matter, but these are books that have been around for a long, long time for a reason. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in an introduction a few years ago to a translation of Athanasius book on the incarnation a famous little introduction lewis said for every new book we should read two old books because the old books have been around and are tested read the old theologians read the old ministers read the old teachers of prayer and be guided in your formation read contemporary books too but they probably won't be around as long as these others
1: you've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.